0: You know, when I was your age, go ask your mother. I know you don't like it. It builds character. How many times do I have to tell you? I'm not just talking to hear my own voice. Hello, listener, and welcome to Dadages. I'm your host, Chad Hagel. And if you are looking for some fatherly wisdom for your career, your family, or any other aspect of your life, then you've come to the right place. If you want to learn more about Datages, find additional content, submit questions or feedback to me, or if you want to know if that mental picture you have of me after hearing my voice matches my real face, visit Datages.com. Thanks for being here. And before you listen to our podcast, please listen to your father. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Datages. I'm Chad Hagel. And I'm excited. I'm excited to be back here with Robert Wicks for the conclusion of our interview about the amazing benefits of a lifelong engagement in philanthropy. If you missed our last episode in which Robert talked about the lessons he learned from the early part of his career in development and donor relations at Stanford, as well as his exploits from track and field and ultimate Frisbee and how athletics prepared him for his career, you won't want to miss those topics and the rest of the background that Robert shared. I encourage you to back up to to that episode, listen to it first, and then rejoin us right here. Robert, we closed our last episode with a discussion about the tools you've picked up in your career and your devotion to practicing your craft in donor relations, which you referred to as a true contact sport. But I want to go back further because I think some of the gifts you possess are more fundamentally about who you are, Let's talk about your developmental years and how you were brought up. You shared with me that you were the first person in your family to graduate from high school and the very first person not to go into the military. So you came from a very different place as compared to these people with whom you're working today and advising them and helping them manage their family's wealth and finding opportunities for philanthropic engagement for them. Can you take us back all the way to your origin story and? How do you think that it's played into what you do today?
1: It is a complex origin story, and, and I'm sort of tired of <laughs> thinking about it. But it is really, really interesting. I grew up here in California, really in an itinerant family, basically. I was raised by a couple of different stepdads, and both of them had this wonderlust of not wanting to be anywhere very long. And not wanting to work for anybody who they thought wasn't smarter than them. So my first stepdad was a mechanic and he was convinced that he was the most brilliant mechanic in the history of the planet. So if he had a boss that told him to do something and he didn't agree, he would quit the job and we'd move somewhere else. So we moved every nine months all over the state of California, starting up in Northern California, all every county, every little city that you can imagine. We lived there for a while. And for my brothers and sisters, it was, you know, maybe somewhat traumatic. For me, I loved it. It's an adventure. It was an adventure. I had a lot of friends who I only had for a short amount of time. But I do think that one of the things I learned that has stuck with me is authenticity is a superpower. If I could just be who I am, that's enough. I would see my brothers and sisters responding to new environments differently differently. They would, they wouldn't maybe like me to say this, but they they would reinvent themselves and try to perform a certain self. I don't know how to do that. I'm just Robert, right? And when I started becoming a fundraiser, there's a great fundraiser who's a really good friend of mine. And she's gone on to be incredibly successful. And she said, I don't get it. You're just Robert, (laughs) right? And I was like, what else would I be? And she was really training her team to sort of wear a mask and to not share their stories with people, it's a very different style. And i say even a three-year-old can detect one part per million of inauthenticity. And as soon as they do, they don't want to listen to you. But if they never get anything but authentic, they will continue to pay attention. I tell people I'm working for you. I'm getting paid by an institution, but I'm working for you. And we're going to go on this journey. I'm not going to come and pitch stuff to you. I'm going to ask and ask until we figure out there's somebody that you know down in Orange County that committed to make a big gift sort of early in my career. And I was sitting in the restaurant at the table across from her. And I said, I don't think you're feeling this. And her whole body language changed. And she said, I'm not. So let's not do it. Let's stop. Let's go back upstream to where we lost the path and figure out. And it resulted in a 5X gift of what she was going to do. Because as soon as we figured it out, I would say that the origin story of living in a lot of different places and sort of being dropped in an unfamiliar situation and having to get my bearings and having to figure out, Where am I and where are they in space and time? Yeah, that has been part of my upbringing.
0: And were there any mentor figures that sort of passed that ability or that wisdom or that perspective onto you during those formative years? Or do you feel it was something you just sort of cultivated from those experiences?
1: I have gone from one amazing mentor to another. I've always had amazing mentors, whether they knew they were my mentors or not. There's a woman who doesn't know that she's my mentor that when I first got to Stanford, she gave me a piece of advice that it took me 10 years to know what it meant. She said, don't do other people's jobs for them. It's their prerogative to do their job their own way. And you have to understand they're doing it the best they can. And I was like, what does that mean? But now I know exactly what it means. When I got to Dartmouth and I was struggling, I had lunch with her and she said, be patient and be productive. She said, if you're only one of those things, it's not going to work. But if you're both, I'm not too worried about you. I've been lucky enough to sort of have an ear for the advice from really wise people. That's the network. The network has put really wise and interesting people in my path. I could have a podcast that's just the bits of wisdom that I've picked up from all of those folks. I listened to the podcast, your anecdote about Peter Bing, you know, one of the great people. Powerful figure. A lot of people don't even know. I was lucky enough. So he, our daughter was born at Lucille Packard Hospital. She was born 10 weeks early. And this is why you and I knew each other when I was at Stanford. So I was in the hospital every morning in the incubator you know, in the NICU, and then going into work right up the road. When you go into the hospital, the artwork on the walls paid for by Helen and Peter Bing. When your kid leaves the hospital, the first book they get is from Helen and Peter Bing. There was a time when the Stanford campus was covered in beautiful wildflowers. And the one season when they completely exploded was the season that our daughter was born at Lusso Packard. She was born in February. And so just seeing those flowers every day was just such a huge part of our experience and making it through all of that. Those wildflowers were paid for by Helen and Peter Bing. Because Helen said, I think this is true. This is what I heard. Helen said, what would it cost to plant a bunch of wildflowers on campus? And it wasn't that much. And she said, we got to do that.
0: They've literally been planting seeds for their entire lives and watching them grow. Yeah. yeah. He
1: said an amazing thing to me. So I didn't know him, but I was sitting in an event and I noticed he was sitting right next to me. And I was like, well, I have to take this opportunity to thank him. So I said, Peter, you know, I just got to thank you for everything you did for the hospital. The artwork meant a lot to us. And you know him, how he was. He's so thoughtful. And he said, that's interesting. He said, you know, when we committed to the artwork being on the walls, we thought it was going to be for people like you, for patients and the parents of patients. But your experience there is so short. You either come into the hospital and you leave or you come in the hospital and you don't. Like he was a doctor, right? So he understands reality, yeah. understands reality. But it's time limited. You're going to be there for 10 days or three weeks. He said, "What well, we've come to realize is the artwork is there for the nurses, for the people on the loading dock. I mean, my job is just to encounter incredibly enlightened people like Peter.
0: Well, let's talk about another one of those people that you shared with me, who is one of the first investors in Salesforce, another towering figure of great financial success and with a focus on philanthropy and a focus on giving back. And you talked about how he gave back in a different way in terms of how he used his time after arriving at that moment in life?
1: I don't want to say his name. I don't think he would mind if I did, but it's an amazing story because his dad had been highly successful and had come to a point where he didn't need to work anymore. He made a list of 27 people that he wanted to thank, and he went on a gratitude tour. I think it took him three years, and it took him all over the world, and he committed to Having a special experience with this person, one-on-one experience, and then thanking them specifically. Well, right away, I was really drawn to that, this whole idea of gratituding. I could really get into that, like fly fishing or golfing or the other things that people do you know, when they get too old for tennis and rugby and all of that. That sounds really good, going around the world and thanking people. It's just your next contact sport. It's my next contact sport. Yeah, I'm going to do it. His kid, who was 50, did the same thing, took a leave of absence from this very high profile and very high performance venture capital firm and said, I'm going to take the summer and just think about how I can make my life more significant. And he kept a journal. He met with all of these really important and interesting people in his life and also important and interesting people in the world. And he wrote down his thoughts. He sent those to me. That's quite a gift. Uh, I had only met him once or twice. That's why I say that these relationships sometimes are so brief, but they are incredibly spectacular and intimate. He wanted to know, is there a book in here? I have been a writer. And so there are times when what a person is trying to do is figure out how to tell their story and get their story out of them. So, so they can give it to other people, even highly, highly successful people are terrified when it comes to writing and sharing their writing and terrified by, you know, it's the story authentic and all that. So that meant a lot to me that he sort of shared his encounters with these people during his sabbatical. When he came back to his firm, he's gone on to, I think he got it figured out. He's one of the, the people I say that was time well spent.
0: Well, and you described to me how when people get to that moment, as you said, when they've got it figured out, that there's this transcendence in a way. And I think you described it as an animal energy that you witness in people when they get to that moment.
1: Well, sort of. I have noticed that at least here in the Bay Area where wealth is mostly generated wealth, not inherited wealth it's people who have come up with a brilliant idea and then become successful or people who have invested in those entrepreneurial types of people that the people who are successful they just have this metabolism that a lot of other people don't seem to have i'm not sure that i have they have this it is an animal energy this is a it's not my phrase it's bing gordon he's a venture capitalist but before that he was at ea sports and he said I don't know what the secret to success is, but everybody who's successful that I know has this animal energy. They get up and they get their workout in. They take five extra meetings. They just seem to be able to keep pushing. I don't know if it's healthy or not. You know, it could lead to some obsession. I do know some folks that have gone maybe a little bit overboard on the training and things like that. But when you see them bring that same fire in the belly and that same metabolism to figuring out how they're going to make a difference in the world. It is true that not everybody gets there. A lot, most people maybe don't, but I have been lucky enough to see some people get there. I was working with a guy yeah, about 10 years ago, and he said, I have X millions of dollars to give away, and it was a lot. It was a big X. Big X, a yeah. Lot. <laughs> I was working at Stanford at the time, and he said, I'd give it all to you, if I knew you were smarter than me, but I don't see any evidence of that. Oh my. (laughs) He said, if you wanna pitch something to me, you gotta go on a hike. And I was like, I have nothing to pitch. That's not what I do, but I like hiking. And so we started hiking. I said, okay, let's talk about what you are doing. And he decided he was gonna build a thousand schools around the world. And his approach was really simple. He was gonna start at the bottom of the poverty index and just work his way up. And he had built 137 schools by the time I started hiking with him. And it didn't take too long before he realized it wasn't about the schools. Because, you know, you build a school somewhere that doesn't have teachers. The problem was more complex than he realized. He's paused and said, I didn't get that right. I've got to recalibrate, recalibrate. His philosophy, I think, is as good as any that I've come across. He said that he just wants to be net positive every day. And he said, you're gonna do some good things, you're gonna do some bad things, just try to come out ahead on the good, on the positive every day. And I do think there's a lot of wisdom there because people can be too hard on themselves and people can forget to give themselves a break. There's a reason why your workouts are more effective if you take a couple of days
0: off sometimes. (laughs) I really like his view of the world. Very sound advice. I guess it's a good thing you went on that hike with him at the end of the day. I guess the lesson in there for our listeners is the next time someone tells you to take a hike, don't take that as an insult, but as an opportunity.
1: I think people should hike more. I am surprised, you know, having, as I said, been a competitive athlete, doesn't mean that I was successful, but I was always competing. I was surprised at how. Quickly, I fell in love with hiking. I was talking to my brother-in-law about that, actually. I was like, man, I love hiking. And he said, it's because there are no jackass hikers. He's like, if you surf, there's somebody that's not happy that you're on their wave. If you mountain bike, there's somebody that's making fun of your rig or whatever it is. But hikers, you don't ever encounter somebody on the tr- I haven't, yeah. So I think there's something to that. Also, just the act of walking with some other people and talking, unpacking, different topics. There's a hike here in the Bay Area. I know it takes 55 minutes to get to the top, and I know it takes 35 minutes to get to the bottom. I know how much time we have.
0: I have to agree with you on that one, because one of the greatest experiences I've had as an alum at Stanford was a hike that's called Stanford to the Sea that's taken by the humanities department. And I went with a group of about 30 people And it was some of us from the Humanities and Sciences Council, as well as uh, people from the development office, professors, staff, and students. And it was such a great mix of people to get together and spend all of that time together. And it was hours long getting up the mountain and back down the other side. And then we all jumped in the ocean at the end. And it was amazing.
1: They made fun of me at Stanford for being a guy that did my job on the hiking trails or wherever. As I say, you got to meet people where they are. When I was working in Orange County, there was an incredible conversation I had at an Angels game because the person was so busy. She was running a biotech company, and she didn't have any time to see me because she needed to take her son to the Angels game. And She said, if you want to come to the game, I got an extra seat. (laughs) Right. We were able to have a really interesting conversation and I was able to hang out with a seven year old kid at the same time.
0: Wow. You're like Richard Attenborough meeting the wildlife in its natural environment. (laughs) Yeah, that's that's great. Well, and speaking of wildlife, let's talk about kids. You have obviously picked up a lot of wisdom an amazing amount of knowledge and perspective in your career from the people that you've surrounded yourself with. And I really feel that you've been able to do so because of that one characteristic that you talked about earlier your authenticity. That's what's so engaging about you and endearing, and why you're able to build these relationships. As you've picked all of this up and as you've had all of these experiences, Now that you're a dad, how do you package all of that and deliver it to your kids in a way that resonates and lands with them? As a daily struggle, man,
1: (laughs) (laughs) I learned sort of early on that if you try to get them to put their shoes on and tell them to put their shoes on, because you got to get out the door, you might have a hard time. It's like those, remember those finger handcuff things? The Chinese finger cuffs? Yeah. If you try hard, it just gets harder. And so I had realized really early on being a dad that if I just sat on the ground and started putting my shoes on, if I was at their level, they got the message. There are a whole bunch of things I hope to be able to teach them ultimately. They are 12 and 14, about to be 14. Two girls, two amazing girls. I don't know, man. Figuring out how to package it, we all have to be pretty humble about that. I do notice that they are picking up some of the lessons that I need them to learn. Where do you see that? One of our family values is flexibility and adaptability. I say that's the main thing. It's not grades. Can you be flexible? Can you adapt?
0: In sports performance, it's plasticity.
1: Plasticity, yeah. I went to this dinner on raising the well-rounded child in Silicon Valley, just this small dinner. And there are three pieces of advice One of them stuck with me was, your kids need to know that you don't have all the answers and it's not necessarily easy for you. Her point was, you're highly successful people, you're living in the most competitive environment in the country and you're making it. It can seem like you have it all figured out. Make sure that they know that that's not the case. I do think that my daughters appreciate that I know that I'm fallible and that I don't have all the answers and that I make mistakes. Another thing they said is you got to listen to them, which is of course what everybody says. It was hosted by a couple, and this was the father's advice. He said, you have to realize that you have to listen to them no matter when it is they need to talk, and it's going to come at times really inconvenient for you. It may be that they don't want to talk until it's 1130 at night, but you have to be there to listen. I think I'm teaching my daughters that I'm there to listen. I don't have all the answers. I'm there to listen. The other thing they said really stuck with me is one of the lessons you're trying to teach your kids is that being an adult is fun. If you are one of these people that goes to the soccer games, you know, drives out to Fresno for the soccer game and sits in the metal bleachers just watching your kids the whole time, the message you're sending to them is being an adult is not that fun. That's true. <laughs> so what they said is, Get a soccer ball and go to a backfield and kick it around with another parent. That's kind of why I told you I committed to coaching my girls' basketball teams, the sixth-grade basketball team and the eighth-grade basketball team. Waking up at six in the morning, I want them to see that that's fun for me. I want them to have fun playing basketball. We just had a game where it was a shootout. In eighth grade girls' basketball, that doesn't often happen. The score can sometimes be 19 to 6. This was 44 to 40, and we had a chance to come back and win it at the end, and we didn't. So we were debriefing the next morning at practice, and I said, what did you see? What happened? And they started talking about how the other girls were playing dirty and fouling them, and the ref was no good and all that. And I said, first of all, basketball is a pushing and shoving sport. If you don't like pushing and shoving, You picked the wrong sport and don't be the kind of people that blame the refs because the ref is always going to miss stuff, but just get to why you're playing it. Why is it fun? What do you want to work on today where you could be a little bit better? Let's say I'm very humble about how hard it is to teach our kids. It's trite, but I do think that a lot of us forget how much they're teaching us and forget to listen for the lessons that they have. Last night, I took my eighth grader and two of her friends to the Warriors game, Warriors versus Lakers. And it was so much fun for me just to ride in the car and hear the three girls relate to each other, talk to each other. They were making a playlist for you know their next basketball game and all of that. Interesting to watch the ways in which they're communicating and all of that.
0: Yeah, I can tell you now that my boys are 18 and 16, that's something I realized in the teenage years is if you feel like you're not getting from your kids what you want to know about them, you know, you have that, oh, what did you do today in school? Nothing. How was the rest of your day? Fine. If you really want to understand, get them around their friends and engage with them and their friends together. And you'll actually finally hear them talk about their day and talk about what's important to them. You've always been super invested in your kids
1: and in the process of getting them where they want to go. Honestly, when I first met you, I found it kind of intimidating and weird. I was like, I didn't even have kids yet. And you told me you really got to focus on the preschool they get into because that determines the elementary school they get into. And I don't know if you remember this, but you were like, when they take the test, And they draw a self-portrait. Make sure the self-portrait has eyebrows on it because that's what they look for. And when the kid jumps off the ground, make sure both feet leave at the same time because that's what they look for. That has not been my
0: approach to parenting my wife. And it's not that I ever thought any of those things matter, by the way. No,
1: I know. You said it's a prisoner's dilemma. I remember. And that's a very interesting way of thinking about it because what you said is you can't not do that. And yet I have not done that. And our sixth grader is a brilliant little person, a really, really insightful in so many ways and such a creative thinker. I don't care about her grades. I probably should, but you know, I meet with her teachers. They don't care about her grades. She's doing well, but there's some classes that she's not interested in. So she doesn't do well. I do see parents who have decided to be interventionist. I talked to two athletic directors all about five years ago. And I was in their office. These are people that you would know. And I said, man, you guys have the best job on the planet. And they said, except for the parents, except for the parents, they said they've gotten so involved.
0: The notion of the helicopter parent has been replaced by the bulldozer parent or the snowplow parent that just clears the way for their kids. And The way I heard one person put it is they said, parents have stopped preparing their children for life and are trying to prepare life for their children. Yeah. This woman that I sat with
1: in a restaurant in Orange County, and when she decided she was going to go in a different direction on her gift, because she's a very powerful, successful woman. And when I realized that we were having daughters, I really, as a dad, thought a lot about how do you help raise a powerful woman? And I asked her for advice because she was the most powerful woman I knew at the time. And she said, let them solve their problems themselves. She said, they're going to leave the house and you're going to know they're going to run out of gas because you know how much gas is in the tank. You got to let them run out of gas (laughs) on their own. And she said, that's probably going to be the hardest thing for you is to let them solve their own problems. That's definitely a lesson I'm still
0: learning. So you've stayed away from being an interventionist parent, but is there any sort of go-to piece of advice that you find yourself sharing with your daughters over and over again that you feel is fundamental in their upbringing? Changes all the time, but the thing that I'm focused on right now is
1: don't escalate things. If you have a sense of where you are and what's happening, don't let things build up to something there was this social tension in sixth grade, and my daughter and another girl just got into this sort of pitched battle. And then parents were involved and administration were involved. And I was like, this is all about something really small. It's actually down here. Why do we get it up here? Be careful about escalating, figure out how to de escalate in negotiation. When you have two parties that are far apart, I say, let's look at the zone. Of possible agreement. Let's find the area where you guys agree. You're not going to be able to come bring somebody who's two parties that are very far apart completely together, but you can find something they agree on. Those kinds of things, that's go to advice. My friend, who's a dad that I work out with a lot here in town, and he's a Stanford guy, I like his philosophy. He tells his kids to try to fall on dirt not on pavement. He's like, you're going to make mistakes. have a sense of where you're landing. And I like that. How about you? What's the advice
0: that you give your kids? As you said, it changes all the time and I've probably got more of it than they care to hear anymore. Mm-hmm. you got a podcast. Yeah. Yeah. I have to start sharing it with others because my kids don't want to hear it any longer. Yeah. yeah. But I think the most fundamental thing is what you were talking about. The value of failure and the importance of failure, that failure is the first and most important step to success and define your own success. Don't let the world define for you what Mm -hmm. success is. Mm -hmm. And I think those two things are the most fundamental messages that are beneath every other piece of advice that I ever give to them.
1: I told you how I was raised by stepdads, but I had a grandfather, Papa was his name. Um, my grandfather was Popeye's also, yeah, he's my best friend. He's my best friend. I love the guy who was a machinist his whole life. Uh, He would let me work on cars with him, which was great because I'm not good at that. And my family wouldn't let me go anywhere near a car or a machine, except he would. His advice or his sort of rule. He pulled me aside (laughs) in the tool shed and said, don't hang out with liars. Don't be around liars. That's it. Simple and fundamental, simple and fundamental. That is the authenticity thing. Like life is too short to hang out with dishonest people. I think my daughters have heard that loud and clear.
0: Well, yeah, there it is, Robert. I mean, there's the thread. There's the thread from grandfather to you, from Papa to Robert to your children. And it seems to be that fundamental essence that you described in everything you've done in your professional career as well. The authenticity, the engagement, you being you and being honest and open with people around you. As I said, I know that it had meant a lot to many others and it's meant a lot to me. Can I say something else about that? Sure.
1: I heard this lecture. Who's the guy, the business school. Anyway, his father is a legendary business school professor and he gave his last lecture and the advice he gave really stuck with me. He said, when you teach, bring your whole self into the classroom. He said, if you leave parts of yourself behind, you're bringing a ghost into the classroom. And, you know, I spent all this time in the classroom as a teacher at Berkeley. That really resonates with me in these conversations where I sit down at a table and we've got to figure out what you need. I got to bring my whole self to that. So I would say authenticity and all of you. (laughs) Right. Yeah. You know. Yeah. You know what that means.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, Robert, thank you for being authentic, and thank you for bringing all of yourself today. It meant a lot to me, and I'm sure it will mean a lot to our listeners as well. I think it's great to share this Super Bowl Sunday with you and have a Super Bowl quality interview. I'll put you on the spot and ask for your Super Bowl pick. Who who you got? Oh, I think Kansas City wins. Hard to bet against Mahomes.
1: That's the most brilliant player on the field, right? Can we introduce a disclaimer for this podcast, though, that nothing that I have said do I think should be recorded for posterity? I just happen to believe it. And I think there are lots and lots and lots of ways to be really good as a philanthropic advisor that are not my way you know, this way has been working for me so far. <laughs> Thanks for the opportunity, though. I'm also confident in the notion that my daughters will never listen to this. So <laughs> a podcast where dad talks about being a dad, probably not.
0: I would take that bet. I think they will at some point, And I think it's going to mean a lot to them at the right time.
1: Thank you for doing this whole
0: thing. It's a pretty
1: cool concept.
0: And just to ensure that when your daughters do listen in, I'm going to give you the same opportunity that I give to all of our guests before we part and let you share with them your very, very worst dad joke.
1: Why did the woman go to get her nails done after she broke up with her boyfriend? I don't know. Why did she?
0: Because she needed a manicure. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. Well, Robert, thank you again. This has been fantastic. I know that it's meaningful to me and very meaningful to our listeners that you would take the time out of your Sunday and share it with all of us. I can't wait to get the chance to see you next. Yeah. Yeah.
1: And I'm a fan of this podcast. I'm going to be listening because you're going to bring some really interesting people
0: in from the world at large. I know. Absolutely. And as we always say, dads may not always know what they're talking about, but we sure can sound like we do. Thank you for listening to Datages. If you enjoyed this episode, remember to visit Datages.com and subscribe to the Datages podcast to get notified for future episodes. You can rate a review on Spotify and Apple Podcast. Why? Because I'm your father, and I said so. Just a little respect is all I ask for. I put a roof over your head and food on the table, and what do you do? No, tell me exactly what do you do, because I'm doing everything. I'm paying for everything. No, get back here, get back here right now.